Great. So uh, this is a new two-part series. The last two uh, weeks of this month, uh, Nathan's going to speak. And uh, we're going to, uh, well, I won't give away anything that Nathan's going to be talking about. But this two-part series, The Revolution Has Begun. And uh, if, um, if you missed any of the groove uh, through the summer and like to catch up on it, all our talks are recorded. Um, and you can listen to this again and tell your friends about it, etc., etc. So, here are two words. Who's there? Who's there? No, knock, knock. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? You see, who's there are two important words. But I use them without giving you any context. So, you jump to the conclusion that the answer was knock, knock. But the answer isn't knock-knock at all. Those of you who are Shakespearean experts will know that who's there are the first two words of Hamlet. They're spoken by Bernardo. That's how the great work of Hamlet begins. Take two words out of their context and you don't know what they mean. They could mean anything. And I knew that if I said who's there often enough, some bright spark would announce knock-knock. Who, who said knock-knock? Was it Jerry? All right, okay. So knock, knock. You see, so you get your knock, knock, but the knock, knock's wrong. Because the who's there I was talking about weren't the who's there that goes with knock, knock. They were the two words who's there that goes at the beginning of Hamlet. I'm going to ask Flick to uh, go to the piano. And um, I'm going to ask you, Flick, if you would play a note from a song that we have already sung this morning. Ready? So, can you choose a note from a song we've already sung this morning? Which song was it? Anybody? The, the song we There's just sang? There's only five to choose from or something. There's only five, exactly. That's the point. There's only five. This isn't hundreds of songs. It's not every hymn that's ever been written. It's not every song that's ever been sung. There are only five to choose from. So, can you play it again? Which song? All of them. And that's the problem. The note is in all of them. Well. Most of them. <laughs> so, now, give us the chord that that note comes from. Anybody got it yet? Holy, holy. No. No? You're out. Give us two chords. Anybody get three chords in sequence, of course. Give us a whole line. <laughs> Anybody get it yet? A round of applause for Flick. There's the point. You don't get the plot by reciting two words, who's there. You don't get the tune by playing a note or even a chord or two chords or three chords. Um, some of you would have watched the proms or been to the proms or next Saturday night will watch on TV or perhaps even go to the last night of the proms. And uh, you'll hear a note. But the note, as perfect and pure as it is, only really achieves its true resonance in the context of the whole piece. When one musician plays, if we listened to the piccolo now in an orchestra, that would be wonderful. 
But when you get the whole brass section, and you get the string section, and you get percussion, and you get uh, it, the whole orchestra plays together, then everything fits into its place, and you see the beauty of the whole piece. The problem for us, and I really don't know what to do about this, as long as I've been leading churches, i just not worked out how to get around this. The problem for us is that we often end up studying the Bible a note at the ti a time, or the part of one instrument at the time, so we never get the whole picture, the whole context. That's for study. I often think, you may have heard me say, that reading the Bible is fine, but actually to study is better. Because then you get the picture, you get the framework, you see how everything fits together. But unless you see how everything fits together, the notes, as good as it sounds on its own, is lost and meaningless because it's lifted out of its context. What we're going to do over these two weeks is just look at this. The revolution has begun. What is the revolution? We're going to look at what the death and resurrection of Jesus is all about. Behind me is this cross, but it's not just an ordinary cross, it's an empty cross. Those of you who were here last week, I uh, spoke, did the last um, talk in the series called The Groove, and I simply made this point. Um, probably made too many points, but here's, here's this point. The cross was like the swastika is to us now. When you, if we had a swastika on this wall, you'd be shocked, horrified. But we look at a cross on the wall, and we're not shocked or horrified. But the cross was the, uh, the form of mass execution of people in the Roman era. When anyone in Jesus' world heard about the cross or saw a cross, they were absolutely horrified and fearful. There are countless stories of the Romans crucifying a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand, five, six, seven, eight thousand people in a day. When the Roman machine invaded your town, it gave you a choice. The choice was simply this, become one of us. We offer you security and peace. But if you resist, there is the cross. Countless thousands of people perished on the cross. It was like a swastika. Yet we've got the swastika of the Roman Empire stuck on our wall and we all see it as a symbol of grace and hope. There's an incredible transformation. And it's a transformation because there is no doubt about it that as I say on the front of the uh, news sheet, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it's an empty cross, not a filled cross. The death and the resurrection of Jesus, as far as all of the writers of the New Testament are concerned, is one event, not two events. The cross without the resurrection is hopeless. It's just filled with despair. Endless people were crucified. But the cross and the resurrection together become the apex event, the center of history. That's the claim of all the New Testament writers that the apex of history has happened in the middle of history. Everybody thinks that every story builds to a climax. 
But the New Testament writers are absolutely at one. The end of the story has happened in the middle of the story. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the start of the revolution. The start of the revolution. So, what are we going to look at over these two weeks? We often think that the death and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel as we call it, is about how you can get saved. How can I get saved? How can I go to heaven? What does it mean for me? We even have those pictures. Have you seen those pictures of the cross as a bridge between two chasms? We're lost and on the other side is salvation. But the cross is there and it fills the gap and we get our salvation through the cross. This symbol is the symbol of how I can get to heaven. This symbol is not primarily about that at all. And even in as far as it is about that, we've got such a distorted view. It's like playing one note on the piano through a huge distortion machine. What the Bible does say about our individual destiny, what the Bible does say about us being saved and going to heaven, we're going to talk about next week. The revolution, part two. But right now, part one, we're going to talk about the primary way in which the New Testament writers, all of them, every single last one, sees the death and resurrection of Jesus. Which isn't to do with how I get saved and whether I'm going to go to heaven. When I say, uh, I think, I think it is about that. But when I talk about the note being played through a huge distortion pedal, I think that even in those two sentences, how I get saved and how I go to heaven, I think they are a very Western, very 19th, well, actually 16th century on way of seeing those questions. And next week, we're going to unpack them and try to get back to a first century way of seeing them. Because, of course, Jesus lived in the first century and Paul lived in the first century and they weren't trying to solve 16th century problems. Why do I say 16th century? Because that's when uh, Luther and Calvin lived. And actually, although we sometimes all say, church is a bit Victorian, you know, I'm sure you've said that, we're a bit Victorian, we're a bit old-fashioned. The trouble is, if if we were Victorian, that would be a step forward. We are actually probably 16th century. In that, what we do is we read the whole New Testament through the eyes of Luther and Calvin who were fighting the Roman Catholic Church. Their whole task in life was to get them away from the Roman Catholic Church and so they read the New Testament in a particular way. Then in the 19th century, it was read in a different way. And in the 20th century, it was read in a different way. I don't know if you know this, but most of the great theologians of the 20th century turn out to be Germans. Do you know that? Well, they did. You know, Bortmann, Kaysman, you know, Bart. Do you know? And they're endless uh, theologians that are German in the 20th century. Why is that? Because their race had just tried to exterminate forever the Jewish people. And when you finally come face to face with how your, your people has tried to exterminate another race, you have to ask some pretty deep questions. 
And that's why they reworked their theology. They realized that they'd been seeing everything through the wrong lens. And that had made them the enemies of the Jews. Or Jews their enemies. And now they wanted to see it through another lens. But we're not in the 16th century or the 19th century or the 20th century. We're in the 21st century. And what we've got to do is instead of just reinventing Jesus and his revolution for our times, we've got to delve back to the first century and ask what was really happening there and then bring this message to our century. If we do it the other way around, we make this huge mistake. Can you see? We invent a message that fits for us, but it's anchored in nothing but our assumptions and opinions as shallow and vacuous and passing as they are. Instead, we've got to go back to the first century and ask, what was this really all about? And bring that depth to ourselves. So, what was it all about? There's an interesting slide. Let me tell you what this is. This, uh, these are the words, some of the words that Roe just read to us. This is the whole of the book, pretty well, of Isaiah. It's the, oldest, um, it's the oldest version of Isaiah in existence. It was written about 150 years before Jesus was born. We got it carbon dated. And uh, it's looked after very carefully now. It's been chopped up into three bits because it's on three scrolls. And it was found in Qumran the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this is, it's almost exactly the same as the Isaiah that we read in our Bibles, if you pick your Bible up. And Roe read some words from this. So why am I showing you this? Because when Jesus lived, and when Paul lived, they were both Jews, thoroughly Jewish, and this was their story. This is the story, the narrative that they lived in. Not the narrative of how the Germans, the Nazis, tried to wipe out the Jewish people. Not the narrative of how Luther and others were trying to battle against indulgences and all the ways in which the Roman Catholic Church had gone wrong in the medieval period. What Jesus and Paul were concerned with is this story. This is actually the story they lived in. I'd like to read to you again the words that Roe read from this scroll. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast for rich food, for, of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, vintage wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, that blinds them, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken, and on that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The mountain is Jerusalem. That was the way in which people spoke of Jerusalem. It was the mountain of God, 
And here are these verses, just the first few ones again. God will prepare a rich feast for all peoples, everyone. And the shroud will be taken away, it will be destroyed. And death will be swallowed up forever. And it's all on that scroll. And in the, in the, um, in the years... When the people of Israel were taken away into exile, you know they were taken from, from Jerusalem, Judea, and they were delivered to Babylon and they became slaves again. They held on to these verses. Prophetic eschatology, it's called. We normally call it just prophecy. And then over the years, as the people came back, to Israel. You know, from Babylon, they were let to come back in the end. And they arrived. This is all before Jesus and Paul. This is why you need to know this. Otherwise, you've just got the note and not the, not the framework. Not, don't mix your metaphors, Steve. You've just got the note and you've not got the whole score. You've got the first two words and you haven't got the whole script. So what was happening is back from Babylon came the people of Israel to their own land. They were back at the mountain the central mountain of God, Jerusalem. And they lived by this story. And they wrote many, many other books. uh, And it became apocalyptic writing. We talked about that a little bit last week. What's the difference between prophecy and apocalyptic writing? Revelation is apocalyptic, but there's bits of apocalyptic in stuff that Jesus said, one will be taken and another left, etc., etc. All of that kind of stuff. What's the difference? Prophecy is based in history. And in those words from Isaiah, they were saying, this will happen. God will come back to the mountain and we'll all come back to Jerusalem and there'll be a feast for everyone. All the peoples of the world will be included. Why did they believe that? Because that was the promise that was first given to them. Uh, uh, The people of Abraham, Abraham was supposed to bless all the peoples of the world. And then it all went wrong and they ended up as slaves in Egypt. But then the exodus happened and they knew that their God could overcome whatever barriers and always be in control of history and bring them back. But then they'd gone away to Babylon again. It all gone wrong again. And their prayer was, do it again, God. Do it again, God. Do what you did in the exodus again. Bring us back, God. And then God brought them back, but they weren't really back because when they got back, the Greeks were in control and they weren't in control of their own nation. And then they got a little glimpse of freedom and then the Romans got in control and they wrote lots of other books. Daniel, or the second half of Daniel that occurs in our Bible that used to be called Ezra 2 in the Hebrew Bible, that's a bit of apocalyptic writing. Um, and then there were lots of others, Enoch, etc., etc. There are lots of uh, uh, books that were written that aren't in our Bible. Some of them are in Catholic Bibles, actually, but you can get all of them from the library. And the difference is that prophecy was grounded in history. God's going to do this here now. But apocalyptic, in times of struggle, became vaguer and it was allegorical. And, but through it, you saw truth. And Jesus and Paul knew all of this. Paul, I'm going to start by talking about him, just, well, say, talk about him briefly. If you don't understand that Paul was a Jew who was living in this framework, this historical framework, he believed that God was coming again and would use Israel 
and Judaism to bless all people. He knew Isaiah 25, which is a key text actually for for the Jews, off by heart. One day there's going to be a feast of rich food and and, and rich wines, the finest wines for all the peoples of the earth. And God is is going to um, is going to Push a sh- uh, put a sheet across all the nations and include them all. And he will swallow up death forever. That's what God's going to do. The reason that um, Paul, Saul, was against Jesus to start with wasn't because Jesus was a Jew. It was because he was the wrong sort of Jew. Paul was looking, as we said earlier in the year, for a Messiah the Messiah, the liberator, who will come and make all this stuff happen. The story I live in isn't complete because we're back in Jerusalem, but we're not back because the Romans are in charge and we've not become a light for the whole world. And everybody's not been invited to this great feast and death hasn't been dealt the final blow. We're back in Jerusalem, but the Romans are in charge. And Saul was a Pharisee who knew these texts really well and wanted the revolution to happen. But he was against Jesus and he was persecuting Jesus' followers because they were following the wrong Messiah, a dead one. The Messiah had to defeat the Romans with violence, run them through with a sword. It was about vengeance so Israel could actually bless the whole world. The Romans were the barrier to this. Let's get rid of them. Let's get them get them out there. And then Saul gets knocked off his horse on the Damascus road and instead of being dealt a death blow by the vengeful God who brings about what he really wants by dealing with his enemies with force, Saul is shown mercy and grace and love and he never recovers from that moment and you have to read everything he ever writes in that context or you will surely be playing a note out of context of the chord and the tune. Because the tune is this, Paul, as he becomes known, suddenly sees that this great story is going to happen, but it's happening in a different way. For God has come back to his mountain and there is a table spread for all the nations, but it's a table of grace and truth and love. It's a revolution that starts in that way. It's not a revolution with the sword. That's Paul's basic theme. Everything Paul writes is not about how you get saved or I get saved or about how I go to heaven. In fact, if you'd said to a Jew that when you die, you go to heaven, they would have been shocked. I mean, they would have not wanted, they said, well, you go if you like, but I'm staying here. Because they all believed that in the end, God was going to renew the earth. That in the end, in history, not out of history as some disembodied floating around in the clouds type of thing, for individuals something great was going to happen. They all believed that something great was going to happen on the earth in space and in time and in history. And they wanted to be part of that. So if you'd have said to the average Jew... When you, go, when you die, you can go to heaven. He would have said, you go if you want, but I'm staying here because I believe that God's coming to renew the earth and I'm going to be renewed as part of that. And we're all part of a revolution. And our job is to bring, is to lay a table before all the nations and invite everyone in, everybody in. No one gets left out. This has been the stuff, actually. You know when they say the Labour Party grew out of Methodism? 
etc. That's it. what I'm talking about is exactly what they mean. These Methodists didn't believe that, oh, we're all going to go float into heaven. Your individual soul's going to be saved. They believed there was a revolution coming, and this was the revolution. Paul believed the revolution was in time. He didn't believe in a bunch of disembodied concepts called Christianity. He believed in a story of redemption for the whole earth. And through what happened to him on the road to Damascus, he came to believe that as shocking as it seemed, the Messiah was Jesus because Jesus had swallowed up death forever. That's why Paul took about 12 or 14 years out. You know, if you read Acts, he's just kind of missing for years. And he's pondering over, he says it himself in his own letters, which is why we know. He's pondering over what all these big central texts mean. And he finally reads again, Isaiah 25. And it says, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that envelops all peoples and the sheet that covers all the nations. And he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he will move, remove people's disgrace from the earth, and he gets it, and he goes, no, this is Jesus that did this, the dead, risen Messiah, and he rethinks the whole of Judaism in the context of a dying and rising gracious Messiah. That is the revolution. So, the revolution has begun. So I said I'd talk about Paul, now I'll talk about um, Jesus just briefly. The words of Jesus. It's the beginning of his three years talking, speaking, teaching. He's not going to, this is his first inaugural speech. Every president has an inaugural speech. Every prime minister has an inaugural speech. Some are memorable, some are not. They have an inaugural speech and it's about their policy It's about what they believe in. So Jesus stands up on a little mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, we call it, and he says this. He says, his first words ever, they followed him up the mountain. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And in Luke, Luke um, uh, and the friends he talks to, they remember other things that Jesus said. So he has the Beatitudes, but they're slightly different. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for your, you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. What are the Beatitudes? People have written about them a lot, and they've turned them into another long list of things that you've got to try and do if you're a Christian. You know, get poor now, and God will bless you. Start mourning. Look meek. If you can look meek, if you start weeping, if you live a life where you're weeping, you're meek, you're struggling, you're persecuted, get yourself persecuted by someone now. Because then you will get blessed. That's not what it's about. 
Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God. And he's saying, it's beginning. And in the kingdom of God, those who are blessed are all those who get forgotten now. Under the Romans, under this regime, which is exclusive for Roman citizens and crucifies everyone else. Those who get blessed are the rich and the wealthy. They are the citizens. They're the people who live in the right villas, on the right streets. They're the people who are part of the Senate. These are the people that get blessed. But, announces Jesus, my kingdom is coming. The kingdom of heaven is coming. And in my kingdom, those who get blessed are those who have been left out now. Those who are blessed are those who get left out. So, we're going to take some bread and we're going to take some wine. The Lord's Supper, it's called. Jesus takes bread and wine and he shares it with his disciples. And as he does, he invites them, as you know, to join his revolution, to join his kingdom. He invites them to say, I'm part of this thing with you. If Jesus was standing on the mountain now, to those that he talks about, those who are poor and those who mourn and those who are meek and those who are hungry, and those who are lonely, and those who are forgotten. I believe Jesus would add this. I believe this is what he meant at the time. Blessed are you who are lonely, for you will know God's closeness. Blessed are you who have been told you're too old, for yours is the wisdom of the kingdom. Blessed are you who are obese. Blessed are you who are anorexic. Blessed are you who've been driven into situations because you think you matter to no one. You are part of God's kingdom. Blessed are the bullied. Blessed are the infertile. Blessed are the displaced. Blessed are the overworked. Blessed are the redundant. Blessed are the underpaid. Blessed are the homeless. Blessed are the unemployed. Blessed are the abused. Because God's kingdom belongs to you. The revolution has begun. And the cross is the symbol under which those of us who choose to be part of this revolution band together. And Jesus at the table, as he's about to be crucified, says, take the bread and take the wine. Are you with me? And in a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to do just that. Because we have to decide at the beginning of September, as we start back to work and back to school and back to college and back to all those other things, which kingdom we are actually part of. This is a revolution. It's not, a church isn't a bunch of people sat on seats on a Sunday morning, although it can be that and is that right now. A church is an active bunch of people who tonight, tomorrow morning, in your relationships, when you're at home, when you're thinking about what to do with your time, when you're thinking about this week what to do with your money, when you're thinking about your attitude to someone else, what you're going to say about them behind their back, 
what you're going to say when you're with them, how you're going to serve, what you are going to do with your life, both in the short term this week and the longer term leading up to Christmas, and the big picture of what is your life about on earth. Why are you here and what are you going to do with this precious life that you have? Are you going to serve this revolution that Jesus came to announce? Are we going to work together? Why do we run this coffee shop? Why am I asking if you want to be part of there? Because I'm asking you whether you want to be part of the revolution. Not whether you want to serve coffee. We serve coffee because we're part of the revolution. Why, uh, are there a, 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 why did we open this school? Because we're part of a revolution. Do you know, by the way, this summer, there's just one uh, GCSE sat by the students in the school here. You know, because they really sit all the GCSEs next year. So year 10 just sat one GCSE. And, uh, yeah, and it's um, in English, so it's grade 1 to 9. Do you know now, rather than 8 to whatever it was, G or whatever. And, uh, but if it was still A to C, because you can work it out, you know, a grade four is a C. Um, if it was one, if it was A star to C, 92% of the kids in this school got an A to C a year ahead in English. That's amazing. You... That is amazing, isn't it? 92%. You can go to the best public schools in Britain and you do not come up with better grades than that. That's the truth. Why are we doing it? Because the revolution has begun. And we are all part of that revolution. And why through this autumn do we need to get involved in new things as a church? Because the revolution has begun. The gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus is about new hope for the whole world. A table spread before everyone and death being abolished, even death. And Paul came to understand that the one man that did that was Jesus. And he hitched his wagon to Jesus' engine. That is the revolution that is Christianity. Do you want to be part of it? Over to Danielle.